Hello, and welcome to Controlled Pod Into Terrain. We are a multimedia podcast about air and space mishaps, aiming to put them in the broader context of how and why things went wrong. Now, to introduce myself and my co-hosts, my name is Ariadne. I'm the business and aviation industry expert. My pronouns are she and her. Woo. Ooh, that's new. It is. <laughs> my name is Jay. I'm the systems and engineering expert, and my pronouns are they and them, and also a sometimes she, her enjoyer. And my name is Kira Dempsey, better known as Admiral Cloudberg, the aviation writer, and my pronouns are she and her. Excellent. Next slide, please. Today we're here to talk about this. This used to be a 757, but then some pilots got lost, and then they hit a mountain. It's a tragic, complicated, and frustrating story, and we're going to tell it. But first, we have to do some kind of news thing. Next, Next slide. slide. One day we'll get music for this. We are going to get music for this. Some kind of dum da 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 whatever. Okay. So, Alaska Airlines has announced a bid to purchase Hawaiian Airlines for $1.4 billion U.S. dollars. The impetus for this has, quite simply, been Southwest. Southwest has cash reserves. They have plenty of profitable routes elsewhere, so they can afford to, at cost or below cost, keep dumping Greyhound busloads full of assholes who saw the White Lotus, misunderstood everything about it, and went, I would like to also do a colonialism. Hawaiian did not have these cash reserves, and they were starting to run out of options. So it became merge or die, and Alaska was probably the least bad option. Now that merge or die aspect is why this is not like JetBlue and Spirit, at least not to the U.S. government and the sort of various agencies that are going to have to approve a merger like this. So Spirit and JetBlue compete with each other in the low-cost, or in Spirit's case, ultra-low-cost market. Now, these airlines are, for the most part, not competitors. Culturally, I would say that they do share a common place in the modern American uh, airline landscape. They are both relatively small and effectively regional airliners. Both are beloved by their customers. I mean, calling Alaska Airlines small feels like a bit of a stretch because, I mean, they have over 200 aircraft, not counting even those operated by Horizon and SkyWest. And that's vastly more than like the flag carriers of most countries. So it only really looks small next to other U.S. heavy hitters like Southwest with its 750 Boeing 737s, you know, just because the U.S. has such a huge domestic aviation market. Yeah, that's fair. I, I, I should, when you compare them, you have to compare them as sort of in the U.S. by nature to the big three, each of which are in the neighborhood of almost a thousand aircraft each. Um, Hawaiian, for comparison, has 62 airframes. Yeah, that's pretty small by U.S. standards. Yeah. Now, that said, this is not going to be the easiest merger in the world. Uh, Alaska loves to be a single type rating. They love their 737s. Um, if you recall, after the purchase of Virgin America in 2017, Alaska dumped or returned all of their A320s to the lessor, uh, reportedly a lot of them at a slight loss. Such was their hatred for the superior airliner. And I'm still mad about that because I liked flying Virgin America. That airline had a character. A Bay Area friend once called Virgin and Alaska the Emily and Zoe Deschanel of airlines. <laughs> I don't know why, but the uh, Virgin A321s had the least awful economy seats of any of the airlines I've tried, and I've tried a lot. I'm old, my back hurts, and they hurt the least. So I'm a fan of those and less of a fan of Alaska's 737s. I mean, let's be real. The thing I really liked about flying Virgin America was the purple mood lighting. Yeah, I, I believe they were unequivocally the most trans airline. <laughs> I also I also liked their, um, their safety video that was 
fairly clearly ripping off John Allison. Um, oh, that that was a lot of fun. We're yeah. gonna live it on up in the sky. I forget how it goes. <laughs> so their fleet, the fleet consolidation plan is gonna be the most interesting thing to watch. Hawaiian has a mix of A330s. They have a lot of uh, 787s coming on order. Uh, Alaska is doubtlessly going to try and replace as much of that as they can with 737s. Now, I don't expect them to offer Honolulu to JFK in the 737, but good lord, I do expect them to try. Hawaiian also flies to Japan. Uh, Alaska has pretty significant Mexico operations, so international ops are not going to be a big adjustment for either party. This is, of course... And before Alaska, Alaska Hawaii Airlines flies direct from Mexico to Japan. It doesn't work that way. (laughs) This is, of course, assuming the two airlines have their operations merged, which is not necessarily a a good thing or a cohesive thing. They say they want to operate them as separate brands and one air operator certificate. So if they do intend to do that, then they probably need to merge their operations to a significant extent or else you can't get one air operator certificate. Yeah, I, I imagine that sort of administration, maintenance, training, uh, like, well, well, that'll all be consolidated. Uh, I do not think you are likely to fly a United Halaskawaya plane, plane from Anchorage to Ukiavik, but hey, never say never. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Uh, of course, we also have to point out that airline consolidation sucks ass. That's why flying sucks ass. Thank you. Having run out of non-contiguous states, will they have to start naming low-cost airlines after U.S. territories now? I mean, I guess there's probably trademark issues with Virgin Islands Airways, but I also can't see many people wanting to fly on Air Guam. I mean, other than people who want to go to Guam, I guess. All right, next slide. A couple weeks ago, the New York Times posted a pretty damning story on the state of air traffic control in the U.S. right now. It contended that the FAA is basically running the ATC at its total breaking point. And there is a pretty severe shortage of controllers at every level of the system right now. Maybe the most damaging part of the whole story is when the New York Times alleges that 99% of facilities are understaffed, to which the FAA rather pissily retorts that actually only 63% are critically understaffed. And I'm sorry, but this is a real what you should have said was nothing moment. Yeah, is that supposed to sound good? Yeah. it, 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 it doesn't. It would not have, have been a problem for you to say, those accu- numbers aren't accurate, we'll get you better numbers, or, you know, we don't like to discuss specifics. It's just, yeah. Leave them on red. <laughs> We're not horrifyingly understaffed, we're only terrifyingly understaffed. So according to the story, overtime is all but mandatory. Six-day weeks with 10-hour days are apparently not uncommon, as are off-kilter schedules where somebody might get off at midnight and then have to show up the next day at 10 p.m. Everyone is tired. Everyone is miserable. And this is not something you can solve quickly. People you hire today are not going to be behind a radar display for over a year. And it's not going to be at a busy, high-density airspace control for even longer than that because they need literal years of experience before they're ready to cope with that. Yeah, and the bottleneck, the train training really is the bottleneck because there are way more people applying to, um, to be air traffic controllers than are being accepted as air traffic controllers. 
but there are, there are such a limited number of training slots and a lot of people fail out of that training. So the number of people who want to be controllers who actually get turned into controllers is really quite abysmally low. So we are running skeleton crews in airspaces that are busier than they've ever been. We've discussed a couple of runway incursions here, and while the Houston Hobby incident that we've discussed a couple of times was definitely the pilot's fault, there have been a few incidents that were not caught by ATC. The article calls out that there were 503 fuck-ups that the FAA qualified as significant, which is 65% higher than it was the previous year. The article also goes on to say that mental health is starting to become a pretty severe problem and that controllers don't seek help because they're worried about losing their jobs and their licenses. And the bullshit system that we have that requires that they request waivers that get stuck at the FAA Doom headquarters in Oklahoma for months, while they're not sitting in front of a console, making sure that planes don't have a a boopsie-doopsie. And it's, you know, it's weird how all these same things keep coming up when we're talking about the FAA. (laughs) <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Odd that. I, I mean, presumably, look for us to come to you with a story about airline catering chefs all coming undone because the FAA won't let them seek mental health treatment. I mean, that's surely how we're going to respond to the epidemic of poop plans. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you say that as a joke, but having worked in a commercial kitchen, literally everyone there has mental health issues. No, and the the controllers have have spent years trying to raise the alarm to FAA leadership about the staffing problems, the old and rotting building that we're shoveling these controllers into, that they have to share their workspace with black mold and rats, broken elevators, broken air conditioning, infestation with literal fucking bees were all claims that were substantiated in the article. As always, we can blame this as we can blame all things on Reagan who scared the controllers into never using their leverage to seize the means of positive airway control. (laughs) Nice. The FAA has no leg to stand on. Uh, They know they're in the wrong on this one, so their defense is always the same. Cite the length of time the U.S. has gone without a fatal accident, as if that means shit about safety on flights today, tomorrow, and so on. That argument will look great if there's an accident tomorrow, I'm sure. (laughs) We don't know how to fix this. Um, Obviously, it's going to take a lot of money, it's going to take a lot of effort, and it's going to involve the FAA accepting that it is not the 70s anymore. I mean, we in particular obviously don't know how to fix it because we're just a bunch of queers with a podcast. Exactly. Facts. (laughs) Next slide. So, there have been some developments in a baffling, and we think you'll agree, fucking hysterical evolving story. So, do in, let's say, large part to Russia's illegal, evil, and immoral invasion of Ukraine, Russia has been totally unable to import any jets or parts due to sanctions. Oh, so they have been importing parts, just not legally. <laughs> yes, they. it goes further than that. They can't send the ones they have to Lufthansa Technic for maintenance due to the fact that they will be seized the instant they touch down in an unfriendly country. Which is all of them, pretty much. Which is... Which is all of them. Most of them, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so rather than just do the right thing, retreat back across their own borders, maybe throw in Belgorod as an apology present, Russia has decided to resume production of the Tupolev Tu-204. And just to clarify, the the, the jet never really went out of production. They had just sort of slowed the line to about one a year. I think there were some years they didn't produce any, but it was technically still going. And now they're targeting 10 to 12 or more per year now so this is technically a ramp up which was um but 
that's really still not a lot of airplanes. Okay, so so they were keeping the production line going to keep everyone from stealing everything that wasn't nailed down and to stave off brain drain. But this is, for all intents and purposes, <laughs> the restart of the production yeah. line. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's also not it, quite... It just didn't work, did it? What? <laughs> Trying to stave off brain drain definitely no, did, not, did work. not work. So, but also this, okay, this isn't quite exactly news. So they stated back in the first quarter of 2022, when the sanctions first went in, that they were going to ramp up production of the T, um, the 204 slash 214. But what is news is that they're going to introduce cargo and shortened variants as well, which I'm very interested in. Sure, fuck it. Why not? There, I mean, there has to be a, a booming <laughs> market for, for cargo planes that could only fly to and from non-sanctioned countries. I mean, literally, yes. And by the way, their target of 10 to 12 airplanes per year is so abysmally low compared to the needs of Russian airlines, which are estimated to be, you know, probably hundreds of aircraft. So this is really a drop in the bucket. And demand for this plane is actually going to be massive, despite the fact that it sucks for reasons we'll get into. So this is a, a, a largely, in fact, almost entirely domestic jet, which means that Russia can source every part it needs either internally or from its handful of dwindling allies. Obviously, there always exists the option for black market import parts, but those are outrageously expensive. And I cannot stress enough how much your Middle Eastern parts broker does not want your fucking rubles right now. So instead, they're going to build a lot more of this piece of shit. Now, interestingly, since this jet is from 1989, it would presumably make it one of, if not the, last aircraft the Soviet Union ever designed. It is ostensibly designed to compete with the 757. <laughs> All I can say is LOL, LaMau, even. <laughs> really? So, really? So, so what they're going to do is they're going to build these and then they're going to give them to Russian airlines and then question mark profit. <laughs> so these planes are terrible. Compared to modern airplanes, yes. Compared to modern airplanes, they they still fly with a flight engineer. And I swear to God, they have announced that they will go to a two-person flight deck in 2026. At which point we can finally say to Russian commercial aircraft manufacturers, welcome to the 1980s. Yeah, so we even wanted to, to superimpose this picture of the cockpit. I, I don't know how you would describe that, but I would go with like, Airbus, but over a bad connection? Like, the displays are way too small. It seems kind of asymmetrical. The handlebars and the rubber boot on the yoke look terrible. And the shade of blue they used for the plastic is just kind of, like, sickly. Yeah, it's hos mental hospital. Jay described it in the host chat as looking like a Soviet bedpan. And despite the fact that none of us have actually seen one of those, we all agreed yeah, that probably about that. That that's probably the the plastic factory they've still got left is the one that made Soviet bedpans. It, right. So obviously the biggest problem with this is that they're going to be making a jet from 1989. Now that doesn't sound like a problem. The A320 is a couple of years older. The 737 is decades older. But those have both been extensively updated and retrofitted over their production lives. But because this is 100% domestic, it is more or less unchanged from a generation ago. 
And they had until recently no impetus to uh, to actually update this thing. I mean, yeah, they didn't need to. They <laughs> could just get much better planes from some other country. Yeah, so they were producing one airframe a year for the Russian Air Force, and that that was like, why would you bother to update it? <laughs> and you know, the seven thirty seven being decades old is its own problem, which we will discuss extensively in a future episode. And I don't care what Alaska says; the seven thirty seven is a problem. So, so Jay, I, I want to dig in a little bit more into the problems with not being able to get parts. So, where will that be a problem? And what's wrong with whatever the Russians can make domestically? I mean, just looking at this thing, God, it's such a pick-me, try-hard shit tube with two crappy engines. I'm sorry, I really had to get that out of the way. This thing is just terrible. You see, the thing is that when this was designed at the end of the Soviet Union, Soviet aircraft manufacturers did not have the same set of constraints and drives as Western aircraft manufacturers. They, they were not in the same business. Fundamentally, they were not in the same business. And because so much of this thing's design is held over from then and it hasn't been updated, it is a plane intended to compete in a completely different business, not even a market. It's just a, a different thing. Yeah, well, the biggest thing that I, I want to jump in and add is that the engines on Russian planes like this are vastly less efficient than those on um, modern Western aircraft, which is part of why we keep saying this plane sucks so much. It guzzles fuel. And that's simply because in the Soviet Union, there was fuel economy was not a super super big concern because fuel was so heavily subsidized by the state so um so there was so as a result of that there was no real drive to improve fuel efficiency and fuel efficiency of russian jet engines still lags behind today i mean there's other reasons for that okay so these guys are sanctioned to hell and back for kicking the shit out of ukraine over the last decade or actually longer than that but you know, mostly over the last decade, and they roundly deserve this and more. The CPIT official policy is that killing people and taking their shit is unacceptable, you know, just in general. So they can't get Western stuff anymore. They don't have a whole bunch of the supply chain that's needed to build modern stuff. For example, they don't have deep submicron chip fabs, so no advanced electronics for them. China has them. They have a couple. But for two reasons, China is not really into helping them. One is that China needs those products at home very badly. Um, there's a trade war in high technology going on, um, and China really needs that stuff at home to be able to compete. The other thing is that China's economy is entirely predicated on doing trade with the West. And so upsetting the West by giving Russia stuff is not in China's interest. So they can't do that. And Russia can't afford the imports anyway because their economy is in the toilet and no one wants rubles. They don't have the super secret pixie dust turbine engine alloys that Pratt & Whitney, GE and Rolls are playing with. So those Kuznetsov turbofans just aren't as good. Their manufacturing technology isn't as good. 
The tolerances on everything they make are 1990s at the very best, and they've intentionally and deliberately driven a bunch of talent, especially high-tech talent, out of the country. So, great move, guys, really. This is, this is just joined-up thinking at its best. And having said that, I'm going to be honest, I love Russian homebrew aircraft, not because they're good, they mostly suck, but because they're different. I mean, in a world of A320s and 737, seeing a Tupolev Tu-214 would have me pointing with my mouth agape, like the Soyjak Prigozhin, may he rip in pieces. So I got to say it, bring it on, do your worst, I want to see it. I got to agree, Kira, I don't know if I would ever fly on one, but I do have respect for whatever it is uh at some point we'll do a, an episode about banana soviet a- aviation and yeah pour pour one out for our boy getting domed in a real metal way uh the other th- thing jay that i would say about china is that they are trying to get their own aviation sector off the ground right now with comac so i can't imagine that they would be keen to export parts sub-assemblies any kind of talent yeah, yeah, it's just not happening. It's not happening. And the other thing is, you know, if you've got this technology for building these large, high-efficiency passenger aircraft, then you also have technology and parts that you need for things like strategic bombers. And obviously, no one is exporting that to Russia. Yeah. Okay, next slide. Oh boy! So ever since episode two, the three of us have been ironically obsessed with the BAC-111. So in at least some episodes, we're going to subject you to a thing that we're calling Jay's BAC-111 Corner, where I tell you the latest ridiculous crap we have learned about what we have fairly or unfairly decided is the worst and therefore funniest passenger jet ever made. I think it's, it's unfairly the worst. It is very fairly the funniest. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, there was a license-built 111. It was license-built in Romania. It was called the Rombach 111. They only built the 500 series, and the Spey Mark 512-14DW engines were produced under license by Turbo Mechanica Bucharest. Was this, was this, are we talking about communist Romania under Ceausescu <laughs> that they were doing this? Or is this after? This was happening during the fall of Ceausescu. This was this was actually happening this was actually happening in 1989 and 1990. So it it wasn't quite that, but still um it was it was an attempt to move in on the uh what they thought was a, a burgeoning um eastern bloc uh, export aircraft market that they could get into and i guess they they looked at the tupolevs and the uh the Sukhois and and thought well you know these planes are kind of crap even the BAC111 is better than this um so they they tried to pimp it out to these guys in in Bucharest um and they did they built several of these things and it was the 500 which is the, that was the ultimate stretched version right yeah yeah it was the one that was and i am not making this up 22 feet longer than the previous version 
Yeah, and it was the same one with those same engines with the extremely half-assed water injection systems that we were talking about in episode two. Remember those? The things the BAC slapped onto the Spay 512 with apparently very little thought at all. And no (laughs) documentation, apparently. So at some point, they must have told someone else how to make them. There must be documentation that they gave to Turbo Mechanica because there has to be. There has to be. So I've been trying to find that, obviously, because I am pathological. And that sound you hear is the plot thickening and also a pair of spays at 104% N1, obviously. Obviously. All right, next slide. The only entry we have for no taps this week is capitalism. It's our Patreon. We have a Patreon if you want to support the show and Albert Cloudberg's work. We have tiers now where you can get access to special benefits and eventually bonus episodes and movie commentary tracks, which we are hoping to kick off after the holiday. Even at our entry level, you still get access to our Discord where we hang out, ship post, and talk about airplanes, space planes, and pets. Patreon.com slash CPIT. That's Patreon.com slash CPIT. Next slide. We want to give a special shout out to our anonymous supporter at the $25 fire tetrahedron level. Thank you, donor, for your contribution. And by fire tetrahedron level, we do mean we will send you an actual physical fire tetrahedron. And unlike the one in episode three, this one isn't just four triangles. I mean, I mean it, it is literally four triangles if you think about it, but, but this one's real. I swear, ours is actually 3D. (laughs) I can confirm that it is very real. I had them made, and I will mail it to you, along with a 5x7 postcard and a letter signed by the three of us. Yeah, this very one, in fact, that we have on the screen, I think just went out in the post. It did, it did, and it was terrifyingly expensive because um, it turns out that our anonymous supporter lives very far away. Yeah, if you wanted to, you could use this tetrahedron for some kind of fire-based tabletop RPG if you wanted. I guess. All right, next slide. So what even is today's episode about? Okay, today we're here to talk to you about American Airlines Flight 965, a flight that crashed in Colombia. So let's talk about Colombia. Next slide. Uh, no, you. that's the District of Columbia. Next slide, maybe? Uh, that, no, uh, you see, that's the Space Shuttle Orbiter Columbia. Uh, next slide, try again. No, that's Columbia House Music. Next slide. Ah, there it is. Okay. The nation of Columbia, South America's continental attachment point. Today we're going to hear, we're going to talk about American Airlines 965. This was a flight that was going from Miami, Florida to Cali, Colombia. It's a routine flight, and while it had some special considerations we will get into, it was not that out of the ordinary. American Airlines operated this route at this time using a Boeing 757. There were 163 people on board. Most of the passengers were Colombian, and they were going home for Christmas. The six cabin crew were also all Colombian. We also have to set a bit of a scene. Colombia has had issues with conflict going back to the 40s for reasons that are well outside the scope of this podcast. The U.S. war on drugs escalated that conflict. In the 80s, Ronald Wilson Fuckhead 
and his hateful dipshit wife promote Just Say No. But they have also have the CIA allegedly buy narcotics directly from Noriega. And these policies poured a lot of gasoline on the fire. And a lot of those Coke dollars ended up in the hands of anti-government FARC rebels. FARC rebels loved to break shit. They fucked up the radar at Cali Airport, our destination, a few years before the events of this episode by blowing it up. So, um, just I just want to say, blowing up the radar at your local airport is not, in fact, praxis. No. No. It is not. It is not. So all of the navigation had to be done by the pilots. This meant, crucially, that Cali Tower only knew of an aircraft's location when it was reported. If a plane was totally off course, air traffic control would not know it. Go ahead and post it, that fact. Foreshadowing. Now, while le- English is the legal language of aviation, the South American controllers had a very limited grasp of this. And controllers in a lot of parts of the world know enough English to issue clearances and really very little beyond that. And ideally, they should know more, but many don't. And that's just a reality of existing on Earth, <laughs> really. Foreshadowing. Next, we have to ask, what is a 757? My notes here just say we gush about the 757. It's really good, you guys. It's a narrow body. It's a single aisle but it's much larger than the 737 and has a lot more room for activities. And by activities, we mean high bypass turbo hands. It is hugely overpowered for its size. It shares the engines, wings, and the flight deck and the type rating with the much larger 767. The standard engines are the Rolls-Royce RB211, or as you may know them these days, the Trent. These are also related to the Rolls-Royce Spey engine that we were just talking about. Um, there are basically a three-spool version of the Spey with a much larger fan on the front. This does mean that our degrees to 111 this episode is, is one. Nice. We're not doing this deliberately. It, it just happened. It is famously described as a sports car by its pilots. It can shrug off such hardships as hot, heavy, and high and all three at once. While your fat and overbred Bulldog 737 Max needs seven miles to make VR on a typical summer day in July in Scottsdale, a 757 can do an unrestricted climb in the same condition. Which really makes the fact that this accident happened even sadder. I mean, the, the 757 is, in my view, just the most beautiful modern airliner, and it breaks my heart that there aren't that many left these days, to say nothing of the tragedy we're about to discuss. If you come to Hartsfield, they are still very much a native species here. For reasons that will become apparent soon, we need to do an overview of its navigation systems. Now, this particular plane, the one you're looking at if you have the slides, is November 651 Alpha Alpha. This aircraft was delivered new in August of 1991, so it was less than five years old at the time of the accident, and it had pretty new equipment as a consequence. The main things it did not have are things that we would expect these days. GPS deeply integrated into the flight management system, RNAV, and ADSB. It technically had GPS. I mean, the flight management system used satellite guidance to determine the position of the plane relative to the stored coordinates of ground-based navigational aids without actually tuning into them. But that's not to be confused with the way we think of GPS today, which is like Google Maps. They didn't have that. <laughs> and this plane was also built in 1991. So GPS still had selective availability 
and the only receivers that you could really get were sequential, which meant that they were both expensive and crap and very, very slow to update. You know, over a second per location fix. In short, if I recall, selective availability was the program that the U.S. had all the way until 2000 that intentionally made GPS worse so enemies couldn't use it. Anyway, and because of all of that, we need to talk about navigation by ground-based radio aids. Next slide. So your basic radio navigation then consists of NDBs, which are non-directional beacons, which are just radio beacons that go beep, beep with a particular pattern. I think it's actually Morse code so that you can tell which one they are. There's equipment on the plane called an ADF, which stands for Automatic Direction Finder, which automatically finds the direction that this non-directional beacon is from where you are right now. An ILS localizer is technically an NDB, but most people don't call it an NDB, they call it the localizer. Then there's VOR, which stands for VHF Omnidirectional Range, which lets you ca calculate your bearing to a beacon at a known position. By doing this to two or more beacons, you can triangulate your position. So you can find the intersection of two VOR radials, they're called, and that tells you where you are and how far you are away from the two, because these two radials will only cross at one particular location. It works by either using a rotating antenna, which is the old way of doing it, or by using an array of antennas that are electronically selected going around in a circle, which is the newer way of doing it. This you can see in the top right-hand corner of the slide here. By measuring the phase difference between two signals being sent out, you can get the bearing from the VOR beacon to you, the aircraft. And as I say, by finding the intersection between two VOR radials, you can determine your location. Oddly, it doesn't actually measure the range, even though it's called VOR for VHF omnidirectional range, doesn't actually do that. Then there's TACAN, aka Tactical Air Navigation, which was a military system that planes were allowed to use. Using it together with VOR gives you VORTAC, which is a pretty popular way of getting places. TACAN's bearing measurement thing is basically exactly like VOR, but it uses UHF instead of VHF, so it's more accurate. The distance measuring part of TACAN is basically civilian DME, which works like this. DME, which is distance measuring equipment, lets you tell how far away you are from a DME beacon. It does this by sending a pair of pulses from the aircraft to the beacon. The beacon sends them back. You measure the time that the round trip takes, divide by two, divide by the speed of light. Bish bash bosh, you got your distance measured by this here equipment. It's very simple. So you can have VOR DME or VOR TAC or just plain VOR if you're really desperate. And all three of these systems were commonly co-located. They still are. I mean, yeah, but there are a lot fewer of them than there used to be because the FAA doesn't like that they're expensive to maintain. Yeah, aren't these mostly just being replaced by sort of imaginary GPS waypoints? Yeah, yeah, most of them are. And in fact, even these days, even though, you know, there's the localizer and the glide slope in, a, in an ILS system, um, well, that's a tautology, the essence ILS system. Um, 
if they have an ILS installed and it's working, then, you know, there's the localizer, which is a non-directional beacon and the glide slope, which is kind of like a sort of version of um, VOR that's been turned through 90 degrees. The thing is that these are very expensive things to maintain. They have all of these fiddly antennas that need to be kept properly adjusted and, you know, all of this kind of thing. Next slide, then. So I use the past tense because GPS is way easier to use, obviously, and it's often preferred now, especially since there are four, that's four, global navigation systems, plus WAS, which is the Wide Area Augmentation System, so even if your airport doesn't have an augmentation system of its own to get, get you that really, really high GPS accuracy, you still have the satellite-based augmentation system of WAS. So you can do required navigation performance or RNAV using GPS waypoints, and you can even do approaches, precision approaches using this now. So this is very, very reliable, and it's often just better as long as you can still see the sky. And if your plane can't see the sky, then I contend that you have bigger problems. Yeah. And, you know, although it's not used much in certain types of flying anymore, like ground-based navigational aids like VORs and NDBs aren't gone. It's not like VORs don't exist anymore or aren't being used every single day by lots of people. They're just not as popular. They are very much still taught in private flight school. Right. But they're expensive to maintain and the FAA and their friends in other countries would like to get rid of them eventually. Yeah, and by using GPS for this type of navigation, we mean area navigation or RNAV, which is GPS-based. And so using area navigation, you can fly a particular track or a particular approach to an airport using programmed coordinates that don't correspond to any navigational aids on the ground, as opposed to our Boeing 757 in 1995, where the GPS isn't good enough to actually ignore the navigational aids, and you have a limited database of possible waypoints that are literally just ground-based navigational aids, because nobody's defining navigation procedures by made-up GPS coordinates yet. Next slide. So the 757 flight management system would let you enter nav points. It would calculate the bearings to known VRR beacons for those points, and it would calculate how far you were away. But it was designed in the late 1980s, so the UX was pretty crap. The Boeing MFDs were not as good as they could have been, thanks Honeywell. There are some images here. Uh, yeah, I sourced a few sort of crap quality images of what a what a 1991 757-200 probably would have had. Ah, uh, yeah. And I see on here the infamous magenta line. Absolutely nothing bad will ever happen to you if you just blindly follow the magenta line. Now, I don't know if those exact words are ever said, but when this technology was first introduced, pilots at some airlines were definitely being given training that led to a probably higher level of confidence in this magenta line than it actually deserved because the magenta line just leads wherever you told it to go to whatever waypoint you selected and there isn't like a background map that you can compare it against to make sure that's actually where you think you are yeah it's not it's not super great also the image to the right there the lower right is how you loaded nav point data into this thing apparently this needed doing frequently enough that there was a special floppy disk storage cubby and yeah, there's a there's a three and a half inch floppy disk drive with a dot matrix display above it that says insert disk number one and uh, a hand inserting a disk, which is presumably uh, the 
Boeing navigation system, disk number one. And apparently this needed doing frequently. Uh, I don't know exactly how long. Uh, possibly every time you power cycled the flight deck systems. I mean, if anyone out there knows, uh, I, I think this image is from a 747-400, but the 757 actually had the same flight management system. So it should be the same. And the image of the printed circuit board above that is actually the early 1990s. This one was actually made in 1990. So it, it's probably the same piece of hardware that was fitted to this 757. It was a Honeywell flight deck display controller, and it has a 10 megahertz 16-bit processor, a Zilog uh, Z8002, which is a little bit slower than a Mac SE, which it would have been contemporary with, and it had less memory. Of course, it was all military-grade and rad-hardened and stuff because Honeywell, you know, that's how they that's how they roll. It probably was exactly this. It was probably built to like a Milstead probably 1500 or 1700 series. So next slide. So we've got a bit of background, which takes us to our next section, flying to the scene of the crash. Next slide. Okay. So the date is December 20th, 1995. There had been a non-fatal runway overrun at J JFK airport earlier that same day, which fucked traffic around the Eastern seaboard of the US. So flight 965 from Miami to Cali was delayed by two hours getting out of, out of MIA and it was dark by the time they left. So the whole flight was at night. Well, usually the arrival was still at night anyway, but the whole flight was at night. And let's meet our two pilots, <laughs> each of whom had plenty of experience, especially on the type. Like we will cover crashes where the entire flight deck had less experience than, than these guys. I mean, that said, I wouldn't call their experience levels remarkable, especially not for their age. But the point is that these guys, you know, they weren't rookies. So we had Captain Nicholas Tafuri, age 57, former U.S. Air Force pilot with 13,000 flight hours, including 2,260 on the 757. And we had First Officer Don Williams, age 39, also former U.S. Air Force, with 5,800 flight hours, including about the same amount on the 757, actually slightly more. So um, this was their first flight of the day. Fatigue was probably not a factor. Both pilots were former active, active, mili active military duty. Tafuri flew transports, and Williams was an F-4 pilot and instructor. And in fact, he had been named Air Force Instructor of the Year from 1985, so he was pretty good. And both pilots had received exemplary remarks. They were lauded for their skill and decision-making. They were both in exemplary health. Um, but Williams had never flown into Kali. However, Tafuri had done so 13 times. All of them at night for some reason. That's just how the schedule worked out, I guess. So the weather in Kali that night was scattered... Excuse me, scattered clouds at 10,000 feet. The moon was all the way waning with 4% illumination. Long story short, it was dark outside. Dark, dark. Starlight. So for this flight, the captain was pilot monitoring and the first officer was pilot flying. Next slide, please. American Airlines gave special training to pilots that flew to South America, which we think speaks for itself. So here's an extended quotation from the materials. Quote, flights into Latin America can be more challenging and far more dangerous than domestic flying or the highly structured North Atlantic European operation. Some Latin American destinations have multiple hazards to air operations, and ATC facilities may provide little assistance in avoiding them. 
en route and terminal radar coverage may be limited or non-existent. Mountains, larger and more extensive than anything you've probably ever seen, will loom up around you during descent and approach and during departure. Communications, navigation, weather problems, and an air traffic control philosophy peculiar to Latin America may conspire with disastrous consequences. This was in the training. Yes. Continuing the quote, there are many hazards in this environment, but the greatest danger is pilot complacency. From 1979 through 1989, 44 major accidents involving large commercial aircraft occurred in South America. Of these 44 accidents, 34 were attributable to pilot error or were pilot preventable with proper situational awareness. Foreshadowing. Jay, I don't even think this is foreshadowing. I think a time traveler wrote this. Yeah. Entirely possible. The destination here is is um Kali again. Kali Airport had a single runway, which was 01-19. And while the runway the runway is at 3,000 feet above sea level, but the mountains around it rose to as much as 14,000 feet, and the minimum sector altitudes in the immediate vicinity of Kali were in excess of 15,000 feet. So the approach to Kali threaded between these two, two north-to-south-oriented mountain ranges that continue more or less straight for hundreds of miles with this big valley in between them. And that's where Kali is. And yes, we have drawn that onto the map here. Um, Flight 965 is coming, going to be coming in from the north and is planning to conduct an ILS approach to runway 01, which means overflying the airport, uh, turning around, and then following the localizer and glide slope in to the runway from the south. However, to know where the airplane is as it nears Kali, because there's no radar, the controller needed the flight crew to report passing a series of ground-based navigational aids. Next slide, please. So once you're in this long valley, there are three important reporting points you need to overfly and report. First, the Tulua VOR. Second, the Rozo NDB. And finally, the Kali VOR, which is also the start of the Runway 01 ILS approach. So for those of you who are there, who are watching on YouTube, there is a map here that shows all of these. If you're not, I'm going to describe in a little more detail where they are. So the Tulua VOR is located at 43 DME, so 43 nautical miles from the distance measuring equipment co-located with the Kali VOR. And I should note that the Kali VOR is not actually at the airport, so Tulua is only 33 nautical miles away from the actual runway. The Rozo NDB is at about 12 DME, so only 2.6 nautical miles from the end of the runway, off the north end. And the um, and so one last time, what Flight 965 needed to do was report Tulua, report Rozo, report Kali, which is 10 nautical miles south of the airport, do a 180. Uh, at Kali, and then intercept the in instrument landing system and land. Right. So Flight 965 was basically normal for the first couple hours as it neared Columbia. At a some distance, the pilots made contact with Kali approach control, at which point several exchanges occurred in which small differences in wording began to set in motion everything that followed. The next few sections of this story have a lot of back and forth on the radio. So going forward, when you hear radio dialogue, we'll each be re reading a respective section. So I'm going to be reading Captain Tafuri's lines. And I will be reading First Officer Williams' lines. And I'll be reading Kali's ATC. Right. So Captain, Taf Captain Tafuri gets in touch with Kali Approach Control, and he says they are 63 miles from the Kali VOR. So the controller says, 
Roger, clear to Cali VOR. Uh, descend and maintain one five thousand feet. Altimeter three zero zero two. No delay. Expect for approach. Report. Uh, Tolua VOR. Now remember, Ramirez, who is the ATC, has no radar, so he doesn't actually know where these guys are. All he can do is ask for locations from the crew and then build a mental picture of where everyone is. Although by everyone, we mean AA-965, because at the time, there weren't any other planes approaching. Right, so Captain Tafuri reads back, quote, Okay, understood. Cleared direct to Kali VOR. Uh, report to Lua and altitude 15, that's 15,000, Is that all correct, sir? Affirmative. Thank you. Now, did you catch that? It was small, but it was a critical screw-up that started the entire chain of events. So what ATC is tr was trying to do here is tell the crew that they are cleared all the way to the Kali VOR. There is no conflicting traffic anywhere between them and Kali. He's not telling them to fly in a straight line to the Kali VOR from wherever they are right now. But Captain Tafuri reads back direct to Kali, which is not a word ATC used. And in a radar environment, it's pretty common to get cleared direct to a fix like that, like a shortcut. It's a norm in the U.S. for sure. But in a non-radar environment, it doesn't work that way. Even if ATC uses the word direct, which they didn't, you still have to hit every reporting point, which is why the controller also said report to Lua. But the crew interprets this to mean that they can proceed as the crow flies to Kali, and what Tolua has to do with anything is unclear. So now this would have been stupid and a problem, but it would, as you can see from our map, have been over flat ground in this valley, so nobody would be harmed by going direct to Kali and skipping Tolua and Rozo. However, our second fuck-up happens almost instantly after, because Tafuri has previously entered Tolua, Rozo, and Kali into the flight management system. But now, because he's, he's cleared direct to Kali, or he thinks he is, he selects Kali and he presses the direct to button, which gives him a straight clothrized line to Kali and also erases Rozo and Tolua from the navigation display. We should note that Honeywell actually changed this logic after the aircraft was built, but the fix wasn't performed retroactively. So if they'd been flying a newer 757, Tolua and Rozo would have continued to show up, but they weren't. So it didn't. There's no other way that they could have known this because it's not like the version of the software on the flight management system is something they check before they fly a flight. So anyway, now Captain Tafuri is in a situation where he needs to report passing to Lua, but it's not on his screen. And this is going to be a problem <laughs> because our third and final factor now comes in about 60 seconds later when air traffic control tells the pilots that the wind is calm and asks if they'd like to take a straight in approach to runway 19 from the north instead of doing the whole overfly and turn around and land from the south thing. And the pilots say yes, which probably seemed like a perfectly fine shortcut in the moment, but this was going to really compress the time frame, and it's certainly going to exacerbate everything that was about to happen. Because remember, these guys were already running two hours behind schedule due to the delays in the United States, and they wanted to get on the ground. Also, the flight attendants were pushing their duty time limits. Yeah, and however, to do this, to land on runway 19 straight in, they would have to reconfigure the airplane, brief their new approach, including missed approach procedures, slow down like a parachute. They'd have to do it all in an impossibly short period of time. 
And they were high, so they'd have to descend like a mannequin thrown out the back of a C-17. They should have absolutely said unable, we'll stick to the original plan, thanks. In fact, the first officer even knew it was a bad idea. I mean, he said they'd have to, quote, scramble to get down, but then he agreed to the plan anyway. So, judgment. Um, so what they're agreeing to here is a VOR DME approach to runway 19, also called the Rosa 1 arrival. So forget everything I told you about the ILS, the instrument landing system they were using before, because for this approach, they need to hit certain altitudes at certain DME distances while tracking the Kali VOR. There's no glide slope. The initial approach fix where this approach starts is the Tulua VOR, which we already talked about. And the Rozo NDB is the final approach fix. That's where you need to be stabilized by. So after crossing Tulua, they had to be at 5,000 feet above sea level by 21 DME and um, 3,900 feet above sea level, so 900 feet above the airport by Rozo. And there is not a lot of time for them to get down that far in the distance they have remaining. Um, Because at this point, they're out of 23,000 feet headed for 20,000. So Tafuri agrees to this on the radio. He says to the controller that they need a lower altitude ASAP. And they're given one. But in order to do this, these guys are going to need to lose a ton of kinetic energy and a lot of altitude. So they deploy the speed brakes to lose lift and descend faster. Go ahead and post it that. You're going to need to remember. (laughs) ATC says... Roger, American 965 is cleared to VOR DME approach to runway 19er. Rozo number one arrival. Report to Lua VOR. And Tafuri replies, quote, Cleared the VOR DME to 19, Rozo one arrival. will report the VOR. Thank you, sir. To which ATC replies, Report to Lua VOR. And Tafuri reads back, Report to Lua. <laughs> So from this exchange, you can sort of tell that the captain is now caught off guard and confused because he doesn't understand why the Tolua callout is happening. He still thinks he's going direct to Kali. And importantly, he couldn't have called it out if he wanted to because, remember, Tolua has already been erased from the flight management system display. So Tafuri says to First Officer Williams, quote, I got to give you Tolua first of all. You you want to go right to Kali or to Tolua? Williams, uh... I think he said the Rosa 1 arrival? Tafuri says, quote, Yeah, he did. We have time to pull that out. <laughs> Foreshadowing. And no, they don't. Um, but Tafuri, so Tafuri pulls it out anyway. He looks at his charge and he says, quote, And Tolua 1, Rosa, there it is. Yeah, see, that comes off Tolua. <laughs> so the approach that the pilots probably briefed was the ILS approach to runway 01. It's unlikely they've briefed the VOR DME approach to runway 19 because they weren't planning on doing that. So Tafuri probably doesn't know off the top of his head that Tolua is the initial approach fix and Rozo is the final approach fix for this new approach that he's doing. He has to pull out his chart and figure all of that out on the fly as they're descending like a bat out of hell. So at this point, for unclear reasons, Tafuri asks air traffic control if he can, quote, go direct to Rozo and do the Rozo 1 arrival, which makes no sense to the controller who thinks that, of course you're going to hit Rozo, but you have to hit Tolua first. Rozo is right near the near the runway. You're not starting an approach from there unless you're an Antonov AN2. So Rosa isn't where you start an approach, it's where you finish it. But if you remember, the controller's English isn't good enough to express all of that. So he just repeats that they're cleared for the Rosa 1 arrival and hopes they'll follow the approach chart. But he still wants to do his due diligence, so he says, Report to Lua and, uh, 21 miles, 5,000 feet. 
So Tafuri acknowledges this request, but not the part about Tolua, which he's decided to just ignore. <laughs> now, had he taken this command seriously, he would have realized that he couldn't find Tolua on his map. He's erased it, which might have caused him to announce that he, abandoning the approach or even just taking a step back and thinking, what is he doing for a moment? But he doesn't do any of that. So it is dark as hell. They can't see any lights or anything because they're still too far away from Kali to spot them. They need to step back and reassess their approach because this is not really a stabilized approach anymore. They're way too high and fast. The time is way too compressed. They're getting confused about what the procedure is. But Tafuri is totally committed. So he decides to go direct to Rozo anyway. As an editorial note, don't do this. Follow procedures, for God's sake. We don't really know why he decided to do something so cavalier and stupid, especially considering how experienced he was and how good a pilot he was supposed to be. But like, just just don't do this. Yeah, so Tafuri decides that he's going to enter the identifying code for Rozo into the flight management system, or at least he tries to do that. See... The 757's nav database has the GPS coordinates of every published navigational aid on the planet, which is one of the reasons American Airlines liked it for South America. So what Tafuri does is he types R, which is, excuse me, which is listed on his chart as the identifier for Rozo, and then he just selects the very first thing on the list. And normally this would work great because the FMS will bring up a list of beacons with the identifier R and it will put the closest one at the top of the list, which should be Rozo. But he's going so fast, he doesn't stop to realize that the first waypoint on the list is actually Romeo, a totally separate beacon near Bogota in the completely the wrong direction, 250 kilometers behind them to the northeast. Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Next slide. Um... No, Ari, that's your dog, Romeo. <laughs> yeah, it is. Look at him. All right, next slide. Aw, so cute. Okay, so so that's this is the right Romeo. It's on the top right of this diagram. Way, way off somewhere in the distance. So what Tafuri had done here is actually a pretty easy mistake to make because, again, on his chart, Rozo was listed with the identifier R, but Romeo also had the identifier R, Rozo and Romeo both transmitted on 274 kilohertz, and they were both in Colombia and have the same identifier, so that means they also have the same International Civil Aviation Organization, or ICAO code, which is the identifier plus a country code. So the way the designers of the FMS software decided to rectify issues like this was that they would distinguish the two beacons by giving priority to the more important navigational aid, to, and to get the one they deemed less important, you would have to type in the whole ass name letter by letter. And in this case, Romeo was near a bigger city with a bigger airport, specifically Bogota, so it gets priority. And to bring up Rozo, you have to type out R-O-Z-O. But Tafuri has no way of knowing this. And as a side note, the FMS actually comes with lots of prepackaged approaches, so it's possible to just bring up a list of published approaches to Kali and select the VOR DME approach to runway 19, and it will plug everything in for you. But Tafuri is rushing, he's taking shortcuts, he just wants to put Rozo on his screen and descend like a bat out of hell toward it. And also, if he were preparing this approach in advance with plenty of time, he would probably have actually read the name of the waypoint that came up and would have kept trying to typing until he actually got Rozo without even thinking about what he was doing or why. But he doesn't even look. He just grabs the first waypoint on the list and he hits execute. 
and both pilots should have cross-checked the waypoint and the route, but they're under immense pressure. They're now running behind the aircraft in a desperate race to get down, so they don't. They just immediately move to the next thing. And the autopilot, which is unable to understand that this is stupid, does exactly what it's told and begins a big sweeping left turn back towards Bogota. So they lose all reference points on their screen. There's just a magenta line curving to Romeo on a black background. And because it's so dark and Colombia doesn't have a lot of lights, they have no horizon and they don't even recognize that they're banking because they aren't looking at their attitude indicators. These dudes are about to be lost as shit. Next slide. So these guys are behind the airplane. They're losing control of the situation, which takes us to our next section. Next slide. Okay. So our guys are now flying in the wrong direction. They're headed east. And meanwhile, having entered what he thinks is Rozo into the flight management system, Captain Dufuri decides he should probably try to bring up Tolua after all. But by this point, they've already passed Tolua, and in fact, they flew right by it shortly before they turned to the east. So, again, Tofuri is behind the aircraft. He does not realize how far they have actually gotten. At this point, air traffic control asks for their distance from Kali, and Tofuri replies that they're at 38 DME. So recall that Tolua is at 43 DME, so it's behind them, and he should know this, but he does not appear to realize. So a few seconds later, sensing confusion, First Officer Williams says, Uh, where are we? We're going up to... Now Tafuri is being asked, to direct, asked directly, where in his mental map are we right now? So he tries to place them in relation to where he thinks Tolua is, which, okay, that's not a bad idea, they just need to figure out where actually is it. So Tafuri selects, um, in the FMS, he selects the beacon ULQ, which is the identifier for Tolua, and he says, quote, I'm going to give you direct Tolua. You got it? And then he adds, it's on your map, should be. But by this point, Tolua is behind them and to the left, in approximately their 7 or 8 o'clock position, so when Tafuri plugs it in, the beacon itself isn't on the screen, and the projected path to it just shows a turn looping back to the left, which is, obviously, that's accurate. But Tafuri doesn't realize they've turned east toward Bogota, nor does he realize that they've passed Lua already, so this looks totally wrong. He thinks that Tolua should be in front of them, and perhaps slightly to the right. He just can't square the circle, his mental map is now completely messed up. So Williams correctly points out that the FMS is showing a left turn to Tolua, so maybe they should turn left, but Tafuri insists something is wrong. So to check whether he has the right beacon, Tafuri tunes in to the actual radio frequency for the Tolua VOR, and he listens to the Morse code broadcast from that beacon, and it's clearly spelling out ULQ, which is the correct ident identifier. So he says, quote, Okay, I'm getting it. Just doesn't look right on mine. I don't know why. And by this point, they have left the long, straight valley. They're flying into the mountains. The night is pitch black. There are no visual references. No waypoints are visible on the FMS display. This is not a situation you want to be in. <laughs> Next slide, please. So they're high in the mountains. They know this. They also, as we said earlier, are losing altitude quickly. And with the throttles at idle and the speed brakes out, they really don't have a lot of time to get themselves out of trouble before they're descending into the ground. So. Williams seems to be sort of maybe a little bit aware of this, because he again suggests a left turn back to Tolua. That'll get them on track. But Tofuri responds, quote, Naw, hell no, let's press on to... 
William says. Press on to where, though? At this point, Tafuri suggests a right turn in the general direction of the Kali VOR, ignoring Tolua. They're able to identify Kali using the FMS, and Williams dutifully instructs the autopilot to turn toward it to the right. But by now, they're not in the valley anymore. They've actually crossed over the high point of the mountains um, over here. Do you want to draw on your screen? Um, yeah, well, just where the arrow is. Yeah, they're over there, and they're now, yes, very high mountains directly in their path. But they're not aware of this. Tafuri calls air traffic control. He again gives them his distance um, in DME, which is, for some reason, still 38 miles. <laughs> now, the controller later said he was confused by this because they had reported the exact same distance almost two minutes earlier, which meant they weren't getting closer, which... I mean, that doesn't make any sense. How are they on approach to the airport? They're supposed to be going direct straight into runway 19, and they're not getting closer in the space of two minutes? Doesn't make any sense. But he didn't have enough English vocabulary to really express why this sounded so wrong. So he just says to them again, you can land on runway 19. It's not very helpful. So now our boys are headed towards Kali, which they have, again, they have managed to identify. They're doing so from a point well east of where they think they are, and they're heading right for some deep shit because there are some very big mountains in the way, as seen on this map, if you're watching on YouTube. At this point, Tafuri is now pretty freaked out, you can tell from the CVR, because he says, quote, We're heading in the right direction. You want to shit? You want to take the 1-9 yet? Come to the right. Come to come right to Kali, Kali for now, okay? William says, okay. Tafuri continues. It's that damn Tolua I'm not getting for some reason. See, I can't get... Okay, now, no. Tolua's fucked up. Okay, yeah. But I can put it in the box if you want it. I don't want Tolua. Let's just go to the extended center line of, uh... Which is Roso. Yeah, Roso. Why don't you just go direct to Roso then? Okay, let's... I'm gonna put that over for you. Let's get some altimeters. We're, uh, out of ten now. All right. So you can see from this exchange that Tafuri is still getting fixated on getting Tulua and Rozo to appear where he thinks they should be. He's not thinking about how they're descending into the Andes at 2,700 feet per minute without knowing where they are. And First Officer Williams clearly hasn't appreciated the extent to which Tafuri has lost the plot, or else he'd probably say something. We're a few seconds from disaster, but it's important to note that this whole time, the pilots were extremely aware of their barometric altitude, but not their radio altitude. Pressure altimeters work by telling you how far above sea level you are, but that doesn't help you determine how far off the ground you are. For that, you need a radio altimeter. And radio altimeters work by sending a pencil beam signal directly down perpendicular to the body. It doesn't look ahead, it can only tell you where the terrain below you is right now, not where it's going to be in 10 or 20 seconds. They may be at 10,000 feet in indicated pressure altitude, but they're only a few hundred feet above the mountains ahead, and that is dropping precipitously. Yeah, and also it should be pointed out that the radio altimeter doesn't even come alive and start displaying any information until you're 2,500 feet above the ground, which for most of this entire period, they were more than that. So it's suddenly right at the last minute that it even starts displaying anything at all. So at this point, Tafuri reports to air traffic control that they're at 9,000 feet. And the controller calls one last time to ask for their DME distance 
but he never gets an answer because at that very moment, the ground proximity warning system goes off. Terrain, terrain, pull up, pull up. This is old school ground proximity warning system, which is based on the radio altimeter. It's measuring the closure rate with the ground directly beneath the airplane. So if you're flying toward a mountain, the GPWS is only going to know something is wrong when the slope of that mountain is directly beneath you. And because this is the Andes, the mountain is very steep. They do not have a lot of time to react to this warning. But they do react very quickly. In fact, the official report notes that their actions took less than two seconds. So they go full takeoff go-around power. Williams starts hauling back on the yoke. Within, again, within two seconds. The normal reaction time to a GPWS warning with training is considered to be five seconds or less. So under two seconds is very good, by the way. Seriously, get a stopwatch and see how long five seconds actually is. You'll note you'd be hard-pressed to remember your own name under the kind of pressure they were under, and these guys had to execute a life-saving maneuver. So Williams is giving it everything he has. He's holding the plane, bank holding the plane back right at the edge of a stall. Tafuri is watching their radar altimeter keep ticking down towards zero. They're pulling so hard, they're activating the stick shaker. They're actually supposed to do that. The way they extract maximum climb performance during a, a terrain escape maneuver in a non-fly-by-wire aircraft is to pitch up to find the stall warning threshold and then ride it. Yeah, so that's what they're doing. The stall warning is going off intermittently because Williams is trying to ride the stall threshold to extract maximum performance. Next slide, please. But here's the knife in the back, you guys. The spoilers, the speed brakes, they're still out. They deployed them, remember, because they were trying to drop as quickly as possible to do the direct into Cali 1-9. Just to remind you, these speed brakes work by adding drag and by making the wing produce less lift, which also causes it to stall at a lower angle of attack. The report actually calls out that had either of them retracted the spoilers within the first second of GPWS going off, they would have made it over the top of the mountain just barely. The failure to raise the speed brakes is, to be honest, very hard to hold against them. It was not part of their training for the GPWS alerts, so they just they just missed it. It was not drilled into muscle memory the way other so-called bold print or memory items are for pilots. The accident report does conclude, as Jay said, that if they had stowed the speed brakes within one second of going toga, which would have been three seconds after the, they heard the GPWS go off, they would have cleared the mountain. Interestingly, that three seconds is enough for two rounds of whoop whoop pull up. This is the kind of detailed reporting you only get here on CPIP. If they had retracted the speed brakes when they pulled up and executed a perfect climb out on the edge of a stall, they would have cleared the mountain by about 300 feet. Yeah, and I also want to add a little thing. I don't think we actually mentioned this in the notes, but a lot of airlines have a policy where if you have the speed brakes out, you have to keep one hand on the speed brake lever at all times so you do not forget to retract them again. And American Airlines did not have that policy at that time. So, but who knows? He probably would have taken his hand off of it anyway and forgotten anyway, but we'll never know. So anyway, at this point, the pilots, they gave it everything. The cockpit voice recorder captured Tafuri shouting, pull up baby and more more over and over but it just it just wasn't enough they were climbing steeply when they hit the mountain ridge about 200 feet below the top at which point the airplane broke into several pieces continued forward and was catapulted over the top of the mountain and down the other side where it came to rest quite far down the slope amid the trees totally destroyed next slide let's talk about the aftermath next slide so Pretty much everyone, unfortunately, died instantly on impact. 
the impact initially left only five survivors, one of which whom would later go on to die in hospital. So that left a total of 159 people dead and four survivors, which was the worst air disaster in the history of Colombia and still is. A dog survived. You cannot forget the dog lived. Yes, it was still found still in its cage in the cargo hold, completely unscathed. Such a lucky, precious creature. <laughs> yeah. So, but this was an extremely energetic crash. I mean, the report noted that both the flight data recorder and this cockpit voice recorder had been pretty well obliterated, but their data tapes stayed intact. The crash was also in a very hard-to-get-to place, requiring either a long trek up a mountain or by helicopter. So the crash site wasn't actually found until the next day, and the survivors were there overnight. And it's frankly a miracle they survived that long, because they all had serious injuries on a 9,000-foot mountaintop in December. And even in the tropics, that's pretty brutal. I mean, I'll tell you, altitude is altitude. 9,000 feet above sea level is going to be cold no matter where you are on the planet. Yeah. Now, not long after the impact, the locals that knew the area were able to get to the plane, and they stole so much shit. I don't mean they ripped the copper wiring out. I mean they stole avionics, they stole mechanical components, they stole the thrust reverses from the engines. They did this while the bodies were still in the plane. And they were not looking for, for souvenirs. These guys knew what they were doing, they knew where to get the parts, they knew how to fence them, and you will get a single guess as to where all the parts ended up. It ended up in the most backwater, lawless, hateful place on the planet, the true end state for all aviation, and the place where you shouldn't trust a single thing with wings. Next slide. Next slide. The most wretched hive of scum and villainy. I'm talking, of course, about Florida. It's Florida. Of course it's fucking Florida. It was never going to be anywhere but fucking Florida. So they sold the pieces through fences. Uh, a lot of the pieces entered the black market. American Airlines ended up publishing a 14-page small print document listing the serial numbers of every stolen part. Uh, despite reaching out to the NTSB, Boeing, and American Airlines, I was unable to find a copy of this list. So, as with the plans for the Spay water injection system, if you know a way to get a hold of them, please get in touch. Next slide. We had a good bit of discussion in the host chat about what the cockpit would have been like had they cleared the mountain. Like, do they just kind of tuck their tail behind their legs and go to Bogota because it's a much better equipped airport? Do they insist on going to Cali? And if so, do you circle and go to Tolua and start over? Or do you just, like, get real annoyed and try to Leroy Jenkins it from Rozo, calling it and explaining their, pilot, their plan to air traffic control, who's just exasperated beyond belief? Hey, Ari, do you know what they could have done, though? Next, Next slide. slide. Just... Just go around! Just go around! Just go around! Just fucking go just around! Just go around! Just go around! Like, literally, you can always go around. We need this on a t-shirt. I'm not kidding. Just go around. While this accident is certainly understandable, it is not excusable. These guys were both extremely experienced pilots. One had extensive experience on this specific route. Both of them were very highly rated pilots. They should not have done this. They should have just gone around. There are a number of ways we can try to understand how these guys got, quote, so screwed up, to quote our captain. So the first thing I want to focus on is situational awareness. Obviously, these guys did not have it. But what was going on here was a sort of attentional tunneling. You have one or both crew members becoming fixated on dealing with a perceived obstacle, 
which in this case was the FMS not showing the waypoints where they think they are or want them to be, which they consider to be standing in the way of accomplishing their goal. And so the idea that maybe the goal isn't achievable anymore or is never achievable doesn't cross their minds, and it won't until or unless the perceived obstacle is removed. So the way I see it is that Captain Tafuri probably thought he could get everything in order if only he was able to get the FMS to do what he wanted it to do, so he just kept focusing on that at the expense of the actual fast-paced situation that was developing around him. Have you ever heard of target fixation? Yeah, it's similar. Right. Not quite the same thing. So pilots are taught situational awareness strategies, and one of these is that the more complicated a system is, the earlier you should forget about it when a situation starts getting tricky. One way I've seen this described is that you don't try to reprogram your nav track to avoid an impending midair collision. Obviously, you just grab the yoke and you make an invasive maneuver, right? So if you're descending toward mountainous terrain and you're fiddling around with the FMS, that should raise all kinds of alarm bells. You don't mess with the FMS in that situation. If something seems really off and you have no visual reference and there are mountains nearby, you climb to the minimum sector altitude and circle until you've got it figured out. And the same goes for First Officer Williams. The crash wasn't directly his fault. I mean, but the CVR transcript strongly suggests that he had a better understanding of their situation than Tafuri did. But because Tafuri knew the approach and Williams didn't, and because Tafuri appeared to know what he was doing until quite late in the sequence of events, Williams just never said anything. And we can't know what he was thinking, but my personal impression is that he sensed something was wrong, but he couldn't articulate what it was exactly, so he just deferred to his captain. But even a vague statement like, I don't like this, might have altered the course of events. I mean, Williams did say, where are we? But that phrasing allowed Tafuri to deflect by highlighting his futile and misdirected efforts to determine where they were or rather where the waypoints were, it seems like he never thought of much about where he was. It was the waypoints that were all screwed up. It, it sort of feels like the, the prototypical boomer dad, right? Who, who insists that, you know, n- no problem. It's, it's, it's never his fault. The airline was delayed. The car broke down. You know, it's 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 never the they are never the problem. It is always the system they are dealing with. Yeah. And I don't want to say that, like, Tafuri was, you know, was in that mindset. We don't know. We weren't in his head. You know, we, but, but, you know, it can genuinely be really hard to admit for anybody that, you know, I have screwed up. I need to erase everything and start over, especially when you're the one in command and you're supposed to know what you're doing. It's just, it's just psychologically difficult. Yeah. I think the hardest person to admit you screwed up to is sometimes yourself. Mm-hmm. And we on this podcast say that there is no party like a toga party because a toga party goes missed. Yep. You know what else could have prevented this? You know it. You love it. It is the official Jack Parsons label C-Pit J-2-5, baby! Oh, yeah. Yeah, it may be hard to admit that you've made a big mistake and need to go around, but maybe it would be easier if it gave you an excuse to use your airliner's Jado system. (laughs) Do we we even need to bring up the conspiracy theory that these guys got somehow gas poisoned and that's why they fucked up? No, I mean, it's a baseless conspiracy with no evidence that basically relies on the NTSB covering shit up, which the NTSB doesn't do that. I'm sorry, they just don't. It, I mean, it's the entire premise of this theory is that there's no way two pilots this experienced would have gotten this lost, but it can happen. It has happened many times that such experienced pilots have made such basic mistakes. And there are just, I mean, there are just quirks of human nature that make us susceptible to biases that make things like this happen. You don't need 
poison gas in the airplane to explain that. Uh, although, you know, so even though, you know, that book came out and then it got a lot of attention and like now one of the sur four survivors of the crash believes that's what happened and is going around spreading it. And I'm just like, you know, I don't know, it's, it's, it's just tragic that... We have also covered a case of a pilot who had actual poison in his cockpit and still flew like a fucking boss. That is true. That is literally true. Next slide. I want to dig into why they didn't retract the steep brakes. Well, short version is that they just didn't think to do so. And it's largely because they were not taught to by AA as part of their, as we talked about, memory item training, which are procedures that are drilled over and over and over until they become rote muscle memory. Because if you have like two seconds to act, you're not going to do anything in two seconds that's not a memory item. It just, you just aren't. Yeah, and I kind of want to blame Boeing for not tying those two systems together. I mean, obviously the toga button ought to do that. Again, you know, on Airbus aircraft, it does. If you if you push to toga, toga thrust, the speed brakes retract automatically. But on Boeing's, it doesn't for, I don't know, Boeing reasons, TM. Some pilot going back to toga, he might also want the speed brakes too. Some asshole engineer in Seattle, probably. The pilot is always right, Ariadne. Some dipshit in Toulouse, on the other hand, is like, the pilot, he may be an Asseline, so we are not getting caught this way again. <laughs> yeah, he programmed that response and then he went on strike. No, he didn't go on strike. He just went on vacation for a month to Greece. Okay, so here's the even sillier part. Get this. The 757 actually does retract the spoilers when go-around thrust is selected, but only when the plane is on the ground. <laughs> so it's, come on, it's it's right fucking there. You've already built the system to do this, but it, you just decided not to do it in flight? Bastards. <laughs> so we actually looked this up because this seems like blatantly obvious as a safety feature, right? The NTSB thought so too. There is no situation in which you want to have toga thrust and the speed brakes out that I can think of. And if for some reason you have managed to magic yourself into a situation like that, maybe you could, there should be some override or something, but I can't imagine that would ever get used. The NTSB thought the same as we did, because the first two recommendations from this report were, quotes, Evaluate the effects of automatically stowing the speed brakes on existing airplanes when high power is commanded and determine the desirability of incorporating automatic speed brake retraction on these airplanes for wind shear and terrain escape maneuvers or other situations demanding maximum thrust and climb capability. Class 2, Priority Action, A9690, and require that newly certified transport category aircraft include automatic speed brake retraction during wind shear and ground proximity warning system escape maneuvers or other situations demanding maximum thrust and climb capability. Also a class two priority action, A9691, and the fucking FAA decided not to, and the NTSB, Oh boy, they were extremely salty about this. The FAA claimed that microprocessor-controlled planes like Airbus Industries and Boeing Company already had this feature. They were half right, Airbus did. But the fact that an entire 757 full of people just got spread across a mountaintop would seem to imply that Boeing, in fact, very much did fucking not. 
An Airbus can't have this happen because of the undeniable fact that it is the best all-round airliner ever made. And the Airbus fly-by-wire system is inherently superior. Suck it, Boeing. We can thank Margaret Hamilton for that. And fly-by-wire systems never go wrong, especially not in particularly complex and complicated ways that require a very soon-to-come episode to entirely explore. Thank you for that. <laughs> Another significant problem that led to this accident was the English proficiency of air traffic control. That was a pretty serious problem in Latin America at a time. And according to a pilot I've spoken with, this has not improved much since. So that's nice. Next slide. Should we talk about Thai Airways Flight 311? Yeah, I think we should. So this flight is a crash that happened a few years before Flight 965 in July of 1992. Basically, an A310 was on approach to Kathmandu into runway 20, which, like 965, flight, flight 965, would require a downwind approach for the turnaround. And the controller instead cleared them st straight into an approach. And like Flight 965, there are pretty serious language barriers between the plane and air traffic control that led to, you know, difficulty understanding where each other was. This was also a non-radar environment. The flight crew got behind the airplane while dealing with a minor mechanical fault. They got lost in their mental picture of the area. The captain tried to figure out where they were using his FMS, and the ground proximity warning system went off. And in this case, the captain also, you know, pissed away valuable time for evasive maneuvering by trying to keep going and ignoring the GPWS, believing it to be a false alarm because his mental map had him somewhere else entirely. But it probably wouldn't have made any difference because a few seconds later, they slammed into the Himalayas at 400 kilometers per hour and killed 113 people. So why do we bring this up? Because, much like American 965, a flight deck full of qualified pilots got behind the airplane and with no technical issues, got lost enough to get killed. Yeah, or they had one technical issue, but it went away. So, also, the pilots of Flight 965 almost definitely participated in a training module focusing on Thai Airways Flight 311 just a few months before the crash. And the point of that module was to highlight how focusing on the FMS in a fluid situation narrowed the crew's attention while they could have clarified that they were going the wrong way had they simply taken the time to look at an analog compass. <laughs> but the point clearly did not get drilled into their heads hard enough. And that's not to say that they didn't understand the point if you had asked them, I think they probably would have been able to articulate it to you quite quite well. It's that when they found themselves in a similar situation, they didn't have the self-awareness needed to recognize that. And that's something everyone, I think, should strive to develop. Next slide, please. Obviously, there were quite a few changes in the aftermath of the accident. Some of them were procedural, like raising the sterile cockpit threshold in Latin America and airspace to 25,000 feet. Now, I didn't include any of this dialogue in the episode because it's not really relevant to it. But there's a huge amount of cross-talk about things that are not the mountains when their conversations should have been the mountains. Mostly they were sort of bitching about crew rest regulations in particular, airline management in general. Uh, this is on brand. I'm assured by pilot friends that complaining about the airline is the number one topic of conversation on the flight deck. These stereo cockpit regulations matter, and we will discuss why in a bit more detail in a later episode. There was also an overhaul in CRM training after this crash as well. Discussing this crash with an airline captain, they described it as a bit of a wake-up for the industry in the same way Colgan would be to an even more major degree later in, in the 2000s. The technical overhaul was significant, and it has all but eliminated CFET as a cause of fatal accidents. In particular, this crash cemented the adoption of EGPWS, and I'm going to talk about it because I want to talk about the Honeywell engineer Don Bateman who built it. 
So this guy helped develop the original GPWS, and then sometime after the fall of the USSR, he figured out that the Soviets had this comprehensive global terrain database that they developed to help guide cruise missiles. And Bateman realized that when combined with the recently made public GPS, these could be extremely useful in saving lives. So he developed eGPWS that would compare a a plane's heading, speed, and location, and calculate potential impacts more than a minute in advance. This is different from the GPWS that Tafuri and Williams had in a couple of significant ways. That was based around a radar altimeter that could only look at the ground below the plane and note whether it was rising faster than the plane was ascending. Given a hillside steep enough, like this one, you might not get enough warning time. It also included this nice moving map that you can see uh, above on the flight management displays. We're all familiar with this now as this sort of thing became the basis for all kinds of GPS-based navigations. The original prototypes used this old Soviet mapping data which they could get hold of relatively easily after... Somehow. After the fall of the Soviet Union. I wonder how this went down. Like, they they bought this off of God only knows who during the collapse of the USSR. It's like, who was that person who sold the terrain database for cruise missiles? I'm imagining just, like, old Soviet hard drives being sold out of the back of a Lada, and he just hands him, like, a, a sack full of Deutschmarks. <laughs> yeah, or something. Well, I mean, of course, the thing is that the U.S. Department of, of Defense, or more more specifically, the National Reconnaissance Office, obviously had the exact same database, but they weren't going to share it with, well, at least not that part of Honeywell. The original prototypes used this old Soviet mapping data, but nowadays, of course, the system has long since switched to different mapping data. Actually, you know, the same mapping databases that we used to generate the uh, relief maps that we had earlier in this in this episode in the slideshow. The tech expanded, gained a lot of popularity, and by 2002, anything commercial with more than six seats was required to have one. Yeah, so ever since then, controlled flight into terrain crashes really only happen when the pilots ignore the blaring ground proximity warnings for like 45 straight seconds. And the people I'm talking about know who they are, or rather they would, but they don't because they're dead. I'm sorry. Um, if you If you ignore the, if, you know, if you have a controlled flight into terrain after with a properly working eGPWS that is that you know sounded a warning within the proper envelope and you still crash you are an idiot obviously there are there are situations where it may not sound properly but for the most part this has greatly reduced the amount of seafit accidents involving actually competent crews i have to ask actually if you get a GPWS warning of, of either kind and you hit the toga button and then one of your engines explodes and you crash as a result, does that still count as CFIT? Um, no, it would probably be, be some, something else. I mean, you're still supposed to be able to... Yeah, I mean, that would be incredibly unlucky if that happens. It, it would be very unlucky. And I think it's an entry that needs to be on your uh, CFIT alignment chart. Maybe I should bring up that, I forgot the exact flight number, but back in the 90s, there was a um, United Boeing 747 that almost CFITed into Mount San Bruno after takeoff from um, SFO because an engine failed 
and they did, the pilots did not properly monitor their climb performance as they turned to the right to make a mis missed approach, and they came probably within at least within a couple hundred feet of the houses on the shoulder of Mount San Bruno. United Airlines Flight 863 in June of 1998. Oh, it was with the real yeah, good-looking gray, gray paint job. Oh, God, those 747s looked good. Yeah, so that's kind of that's kind of similar to what you're um, thinking of, Jay. Except it didn't actually crash, but but that was before the enhanced ground proximity warning system, anyway. So they didn't they did not get the kinds of advanced warning that we would get now. Okay, next slide. Finally, we can close this section by noting that this is a route that American still runs using a 737 Max eight, which is great because this is a very high performance airliner with plenty of excess power to climb if it needs to get out of trouble. And famously. The 737 MAX 8 has never had issues with computer fuckery, leading to it flying into terrain. Yep, definitely not. Next slide. So, what the fuck did we learn? Because we kind of covered what changes were made in the industry in the aftermath of the accident, I want to talk about what the three of us took away from this. Fundamentally, this was a failure of humor and judgment, and it was a failure in a method and environment that did not permit any sort of mistakes. And all of their state-of-the-art tech was not able to intervene in a way to prevent this. Two group guys relied on their own training and instincts, but then they developed confirmation bias and didn't challenge their own or each other's assumptions. This obviously is a reason that crew resource management is taught over and over and over and over and over again to modern pilots. There's not two of them so one can keep the other entertained. There's two of them so they could constantly be troubleshooting and providing alternate perspectives. There is an argument to be made. I think that the relative experience and training levels of our pilots actually worsened this confirmation bias. For Tafuri, especially, who had done this exact approach 13 times, his comfort level prevented him from accurately taking stock of the situation. These guys were on the forefront of new technology, but they did not understand it on the necessary level. They had been taught to follow the line on the navigation screen and to trust that their systems would get where they needed to go and that their safety systems would keep them out of trouble. And neither of those things happened. And I wanted to put this discussion here instead of in the previous section, because there's a lot of elements from this that can be applied to every aspect of life. A lot of motorcyclists are hit by people who think they know the route home and maybe looking out the windshield, but aren't processing what they're seeing. Recently, we've seen a metric ton of people in Teslas and similar cars get in accidents because they trusted their onboard safety system to prevent accidents and weren't ready to respond when it was necessary. And an even funnier version the fact that you can read story after story after story about tourists driving into lakes and rivers because GPS told them to, and they never took a beat to look out the damn window. And on a high enough level, that's what this is about. These guys could have, pretty much until the last 30 seconds, announced that they were getting a bad feeling about this, gone missed, and climbed out of the valley to a safe altitude to regroup and try again. But instead, they pushed a bad position, and it cost them and 157 other people their lives. They didn't aviate, navigate, communicate. People talk a lot about how you aviate and navigate before you communicate, but aviating before you navigate is important too, <laughs> let me just say. Very well said. And also, this is fairly typical behavior for two guys in a car who are lost. They're not going to stop and ask for directions. Yeah, that's, that's kind of real. Yeah. All right, next slide. All right, thank you everyone for joining us. Our next episode will be on Malaysia Air 370. Yep, see you next time. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye.